Hello and welcome to Freedom Matters Today. This is Michael J. Sutton. Today is December the 11th, 2023. Freedom Matters Today looks at freedom from a Christian perspective. We have several themes. Freedom from fascism and tyranny. Freedom from fear and despair. Freedom from past and prejudice. Freedom from guilt and shame. Freedom from sin and death. And freedom from war and conflict. We believe that Jesus has come to give us freedom. True freedom. Because true freedom is a gift from God. Today we're continuing to look at a very important topic, and that is the pronouns of God. The pronouns of God, the identity of Jesus. These days, we are told we have to provide our pronouns so people can navigate their communication with us if they desire to communicate with us at all. And we must be very careful how we refer to ourselves and how we refer to others So I decided to look at the identity of God from a Christian perspective. And we have been doing that for the last several months. It fits into our freedom from past and prejudice theme, which is a vast theme covering many aspects of life and faith and what it means to follow Jesus. These days we're pressed on, pressed upon by many sides, looking to oppress, control, distract, and control us. And not only is this from sections of the media, from various um, narratives of the government, it's also from various religions and religious priorities, religious power, also social pressure and so on. What we try to do at Freedom Matters today is to consider what it means to follow Jesus. Because really that's what the Christian life is about. Christianity is really knowing who God is. And once we know who God is, we can know ourselves. And then we can know each other. And then we are simply to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Freedom from past and prejudice. Well, what is what does that mean? Well, freedom from the past. These are the things that define and bind us, which prevent us from knowing God and ourselves. There are many things today that bind us and define us. When you thought that COVID hysteria was over, I'm sure many of you thought, well, that's it. Back to life as normal. Well, sorry, friend, it's not doesn't work that way. Almost as soon as the lockdowns and martial law were brought to an end, we had the slogan, the mantra, the doctrine, stand with Ukraine. Everyone had to stand with Ukraine. There could be no dissent, no questioning, no doubt, stand with Ukraine. And now, in the midst of this nightmarish conflict in the Gaza Strip, where two million people are squashed together like sardines, with apparently over... 50% unemployment rate, terrible suffering, terrible injustice, then we're told, stand with Israel. And any questioning, any doubt of the stand with Israel argument is denounced as anti-Semitism. 
Of course, the reality is that this conflict is rooted in deep enmities, historical problems of identity and culture and race and religion, economic, class, certainly class struggle, certainly racial struggle. This is a deep and complex issue, the Middle East. And so what does the West do in our modern world? Well, we reduce it all to a simplistic statement, stand with Israel or else. Welcome to the modern world, where we still can't find out what happened with COVID. But don't worry, the government is here to tell us what to do. So these are things which bind us and define us. And they prevent us from knowing God and ourselves. What's happening in Gaza is what's, what happened in the Ukraine-Russian conflict. The media demonized Russia. Bad Russia, naughty Russia, evil Russia, said the media. Now the same is being said of the Palestinians. Bad Palestinians, naughty Palestinians, evil Palestinians. Have you noticed how they demonize them as monsters? Terrible monsters. Almost unhuman, inhuman monsters. This is what we do in war. We demonize others. This is a disgrace from a nation calling itself Christian. I'm talking about the United States and the so-called European countries, to go along with this, to go along with the demonization of the enemy. It used to be in war, a long time ago, that you didn't demonize the enemy. You just simply went in and took the land you wanted. We didn't have the media and the internet. In some ways, we are, we are bound by our, our love of democracy. We are bound by our uh, interest in politics. We are bound by... I guess our obsession, our addiction to whatever the government is doing. We, as I've said before in this program and in my book, Freedom from Fascism, we don't actually believe in democracy. We don't believe in representative democracy. This used to be the idea that you would elect your representatives to act on your behalf. Now we can't trust them to act on our behalf. We don't want them to act on our behalf and we won't let them act on our behalf. We're constantly criticizing every single move they make. No wonder. They're paranoid. No wonder they want more power. And it's no wonder nothing ever gets done. And so these issues bind us and define us. The things that we see as ultimately important in our lives, but probably are not. But Jesus Christ, the past, both defined and bound him in life and death. Freedom from prejudice is the way we see ourselves and others based on the things that divide us and as I said before, that's what we are doing in this conflict in the Middle East. The media is demonizing one side and saying they're completely evil, which is not true. You cannot enter a conflict like the conflict that is taking place in the Middle East, in the Gaza Strip, and do so with your humanity intact. Anyone who says otherwise is a fool. Over 6,000 Children have been killed, 4,000 women I've heard recently cited, thousands of civilians dead. And yet, people say, well, we're doing it for the right reason. The murder of one child is too high, too high a price to pay, to pay for this so-called freedom and victory. But no one seems to care. After all, the life of a Palestinian, according to our media, or sections of our media and according to sections of our government and sections of our society, the life of a Palestinian is worth less than the life of an Israeli and is worth less, of course, than the life 
of an American. But this is not what God believes. God made all of us in his image, and he loves each and every one of us. No matter who we are, where we've come from, what our background is, our race, our creed, our economic status, God loves each and every one of us, and there's no one too far to be too far from God. And you cannot sink too deep to be too far from God, and you cannot run so far as to be too far from God. For God reaches out to us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and he reaches out with arms outstretched saying, I love you, my son has died for your sins, return to me, friend. And that is really what the good news is about. It is about freedom from prejudice. We're Palestinians, Jews, where everyone can call each other brother instead of enemy. For Jesus himself, prejudice was a stumbling block for those close to him, and it was all nonsense to those who were not. It is Jesus, the Son of God, the message of God, who enables us to see our past and confront our prejudice so we might live in complete freedom. So what have we seen so far in our story of the pronouns of God, the identity of Christ? We have seen that the Son of God is the message of God. The message of God is not a message, but a person. And this person is the final word of God to those whose ancestors heard God speak in many and various ways through the prophets. There was this expectation. There was this anticipation that someone was coming who would fulfill the ancient prophecies and save, rescue, save and rescue Israel. And Jesus was called Jesus because he would rescue his people from their sins. We've also discovered that this son, Jesus of Nazareth, is both the heir to all things and the one through whom God created the world. These are deep and powerful statements. It's no wonder there was a separation between those who believed in Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and those who did not. Because Jesus is not little baby Jesus, no crying he makes in the manger, nor is the Bible portrayed Jesus as a good moral teacher. Jesus is portrayed in the Bible, in the New Testament, as the Son of God. We also discovered that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God, both by his life on earth and in his current position in heaven and his relationship to God. These are outrageous claims. These are subversive claims. These claims can get you killed in parts of the world. But I believe it is the duty of a Christian to be honest to others about what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and let the other person make up their own mind. And if the other person says, I don't believe it, I'm not interested, that's not for me, fine. But we have a duty as Christians to tell the truth. We have a duty to proclaim the message of the good news about Jesus Christ, which is revealed in our New Testament and also the Old Testament, but it is fulfilled and revealed in fullest form within the New Testament. Have you read that? If you go to church every week, I would assume that most Christians don't really read their Bible much for themselves. They do what they're told. Most Christians do not ponder the depths and the wonders of God. They just listen to a sermon. 
Most Christians do not question or doubt because they're told that if they do, they'll be kicked out of the church. And many of them are, if they do doubt or question. When you read the letter to the Hebrews, you feel as though you've entered the A-League. You've entered the university. You've left the training ground. You've left the, I guess, the training wheels on the tricycle, and now you're riding a bicycle down the speedway with your helmet on in some kind of marathon. You feel as though you're in the presence of someone who truly understands who Jesus is. And we've been pondering, really, these few verses, three verses in the New Testament. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also created the universe. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That, my friends, is the good news of Jesus Christ, really, in a nutshell. These few verses really say it all. These few verses talk about the pronouns of God. Who is God? Well, uh, this is what we've been looking at. This is a deep revelation about the identity of Jesus. The Son of God is far more than little baby Jesus. No crying he makes. Little baby Jesus in the manger with the animals. The cow and the sheep with the shepherd standing by. And then what we do, of course, is we conflate the story. The wise men never turn up at the birth of Jesus. They turn up a few years later. But let's not get history in the way of a good story. So we have the three wise men there. We've even given them names. We've invented their country of origin, their names, the clothes they wore, what gifts they brought and the significance of them. We've turned something quite simple into something very complicated. Jesus walking with his disciples. Well, he's much more than that. Even with the crowds, the miracles and the debates. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Jesus spoken about in the New Testament. This is the Jesus whom most have never met. I can say with absolute certainty that the vast majority of people who go to church every Sunday have never met Christ. They have no idea who God is. They go every Sunday hoping that the minister will tell them, but he has no idea either. No idea. There is a depth and a power and a profundity to the nature of the identity of Jesus, but the scriptures make clear that anyone can know who God is and anyone can follow him. It's all really quite simple. The Son was before he was, and when he came into being, he had already been here. For he shaped all things, and nothing made on earth was made without him. Let me say that again. The Son was before he was, and when he came into being, he had already been here, for he shaped all things, and nothing made on earth was made without him. This is the Jesus of the New Testament. 
This is the Jesus of Christianity. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This revelation about the Son was only possible by seeing, witnessing, knowing and talking with the Son, Jesus. The starting point for the author who wrote the letter to the Hebrews was the human Jesus, the flesh and blood person born in Nazareth, the most humble of origins. The people who saw Jesus did not need a revelation in the ordinary sense, for they had the greatest privilege. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They knew him. Many conversed with him, spoke with him, and so on. I often wonder what it would have been like. I studied Koine Greek in seminary, but at the same time I studied a little bit of Aramaic, Jesus' native language. What it would have sounded like. What did they talk about? We have the condensed version of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, and no doubt he said a lot more than what's recorded there. After all, he ministered to them for three years, and we really have only a few hours of conversation. But the people of that first generation, they saw him, they witnessed him, they they knew him. The starting point for all the New Testament, the starting point for all of the scriptures, the canon of the the Bible and the New Testament, the starting point was the human Jesus, the flesh and blood person born in Nazareth, whom people saw. What could they see in Jesus and what could they not see? I think somewhere between AD 33, which is the regarded sort of time when Jesus died and rose again, and before AD 70, which is when probably this letter was written, certainly before the fall of Jerusalem, because there would have been some reference to the fall of Jerusalem had it been written afterwards. Christians came to the realization that Jesus was not only a man, but he was God among them. The Word made flesh, as the Apostle John would say. The Messiah, as Paul and Peter would proclaim. That's just over 30 years or so, only a generation The author who wrote Hebrews writes with compelling authority, without doubt, without uncertainty, and yet he writes plainly about the identity of the Son as if it is all completely well known and understood. It is not written to persuade, as Paul often does in his letters, nor is it with the pastoral sensitivity of John, but the author of the letter to the Hebrews writes with authority, and when he writes this letter... He does so with the expectation that his readers know exactly what he's talking about. The way that he writes these first few verses, it's like he's saying things, in a sense, nonchalantly, I guess off the cuff or as as a brief summary of Jesus, whom he expects they already know. It's quite a remarkable letter. But we must start from the humanity of Jesus in order to see his divinity. We must take the path of the disciples, the apostles, the early men and women who followed Jesus in pondering, wondering and seeking about the truth about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And I would encourage those who don't know anything about Jesus Christ, who do not accept him as the Messiah, do not believe that he's the Son of God, do not believe he's God incarnate, start off with Jesus the man, as the disciples did. Start with what you know. And see the wonder, the grandeur, and the love of this man, 
Jesus of Nazareth, that there is something more about him than meets the eye. You see, that is the, the thing we need to do. We need to step away from the trite recitation of old cliches that we run out like a production line when we talk about Jesus. If you ever talk to church people, they do it all the time. They don't know they're doing it. They speak the same language. It's like you really need to understand. You have to go to a language school to understand how Christians speak. Christians all over the place have this sort of unique language. You need to do, I've done Christianity 101, not the doctrines, but in order to understand what these Christians are talking about because they have the same cliches, the same phrases, the same terminology that they probably don't understand, but they say it because they feel embarrassed. We have to prevent, we have to uh, step away from these trite recitations, these rapid repetition of royal recollections that will restore us to God. And that really is modern Christianity, a rapid repetition of royal recollections that will restore us to God. But it's not as simple as that. God did not send Jesus to, the, to earth with a placard saying, here is God, this is God. Hello guys, God here. No, he sent a man, a simple man, a human. But those who saw him understood him to be a man but also, more than a man, the presence and the person of God was among them. Isn't it incredible that if God sent his own son to be a man, that he did so because he thought that the son in human form would be the place where he wants his son to be? And we all are flesh and blood. Doesn't that sort of make you feel a little bit better about yourselves we say oh we're so unworthy and we're useless and we're we're hopeless and we're not getting anything done in life and we're not achieving what we want to achieve or we're just things aren't just right but the son of god became one of us just like us to have our experiences in our lives the author to the hebrews tells us in three verses almost everything we need to know about jesus and who he is he provides for us the traits of his essential identity. Something that many people claim today is very important. There's a lot of talk today about identity. There's a lot of discussion about pronouns. There's a lot of controversy over how we identify ourselves. And the response of lots of Christians, the mainstream view is, well, we're opposed to that. We don't believe in this. We don't believe in that. We believe in this. We don't like what you're saying. We don't like that. I believe this Christian response to the transgender, the gender debate, uh, and the sexual, uh, sexual, the gender minority debate, is the wrong one. Identity is exactly what God's about. Identity is exactly what God is about. It's absolutely crucial and essential for us today. We need to know who we are. But more importantly, we need to know who Jesus is. And that is the most important thing. It's not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is who Jesus is. What are his pronouns? Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. 
Wow. He doesn't mess about, does he? It's not simply a question of believing in Jesus. The West has made a mockery of the Christian faith, reducing it all to a simple decision to believe in Jesus without really knowing who he is. If we knew his real identity and became convinced of it, then we would most certainly believe. And yet, we sell ourselves short. We apologize for being Christians and we spend the rest of our time defending the church or church history. You can't defend it, friends. The church murdered its way through history. And it's a history is a complete disgrace. For over a thousand years, the churches just killed each other, slaughtered each other, butchered each other. And now we spend most of our time defending Christian heritage. Forget about it, friends. The only thing we should be talking about and thinking about is the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? The catch cry of the West is, believe in Jesus because he rose from the dead. This is American Jesus, a Protestant Christ. It's the fast food version of Jesus Christ. Hot dog Jesus, hamburger Jesus with fries. It may have worked with the complacent middle class America of the late 1950s, beset with anxieties, seeking the simplicity of old time religion, but those times are gone. And so few come to faith anymore except the thousands who think that Jesus will bring them money and power. Many of these so-called uh, revival movements are counterfeit and fake. Basically what they are all about is, I want money, I want prosperity, I want success, and Jesus will give it to me. Jesus was executed when he was 33 friends. He was poor. Most of the disciples were poor, and all but John were martyred for their faith. You want to walk with Jesus? Take the tough road, the rough road. The path of the Christian is not the easy road, the rose-coloured, the rose garden, and the rose-tinted glasses. These revival movements are fake. They don't care who Jesus is, as long as he writes the check and signs the deal. But our generation needs to know. They need to know who Jesus is, and we need to wrestle, ponder, and reflect upon the Jesus presented to us in the Bible. You see, friends, he needs to be our Jesus. Not just the Jesus of our parents. Not just the Jesus of our church, our past, or our heritage. Jesus Christ is not an heirloom we pass down from father to son. He is a person with whom we must encounter in our lives, for ourselves, on our own terms, without all the noise in the background. As I've said before, and I'll say it again, the most important thing in the Christian faith is not the resurrection of Jesus. This is what God does for Jesus. It was his act to raise him from the dead. But his identity, who he is. Jesus could just be an ordinary bloke, an ordinary fella, an ordinary man. And most Christians would have no problem with this. But his divinity is a problem that God needed to be raised from the dead. God died. God was buried and God was raised. This is deep, deep, deep stuff. This is profound. The sun is the radiance of the glory of God. We need to see the sun to see the radiance of the glory of God. Otherwise, we cannot see God. To see God, we need to see the sun. The radiance of the glory of God we have seen is the person of Jesus, his identity, his past, and his position before God. 
This light is his person. This light is his character. And this light is the benefit of knowing him. But there is another aspect to this radiance. It is an overwhelming presence, overwhelming sense of being in the presence of God. It is a shining, blinding light that tells us that we have stepped into a sacred place at a sacred time before a being of sacredness. In the Greek, it's simply about shining, someone who's shining. It's intentional for the author to mention this, the shining of Jesus and the brightness of Jesus, because he goes on later to talk about angels, and one of their characteristics is that they shine an absolute brightness to those around them. For some reason, the intended recipients of this letter downplayed the person of Jesus, arguing instead that it was angels who more definitively defended the character, person, and authority of God. They love angels and probably draw from the Torah, the law, the stories of the patriarchs when angels appeared and spoke the words of God. The ancient Jews believed in angels. Certainly the Pharisees did, though not the Sadducees, and they believed that the angels were the messengers of God, the ones who spoke the words of God, and the ones who stood between God and us. The author of this letter, however, goes to great lengths, arguing that while angels brought light and brought the light of God, they do not enjoy the same position as the Son of God. This is a debate that's lost to us today, as we probably don't see the contest between Jesus and angels, though many still believe in angels today. His readers had a problem seeing the identity of Jesus, for they knew Jesus as a man. Jesus to them was simply a man. And it was only on the mountain when Peter, James and John saw Jesus changed into brightness that they could say or affirm that this shining of Jesus emanated from his actual person. From day to day, he was seen as an ordinary man. No doubt he was charismatic and many were attracted to him, even his enemies. And though he doesn't mention it, the author of the letter to the Hebrews might have been thinking about the great prophetic visions of Ezekiel when he wrote in chapter 1, verses 25 to 28. You see, it's not about Gog and Magog and Israel and Iran and Russia, all the ramblings of those fake Christian ministers who have thousands and thousands of subscribers all just being the blind leading the blind. The book of Ezekiel primarily is about the people of God returning to God and God providing for them and loving them. And there is this remarkable passage in it Ezekiel is not speaking of angels, far from it, far, far from it, but it has remained one of the strangest prophecies in the entire Hebrew Bible. Let me just read it for you. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads, as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of stones, and high above the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. A similar idea appears in the enigmatic book of Daniel, again, 
grossly misunderstood and misinterpreted by the church today, where the eunuch, Daniel, sees uh, whom the Torah sees as useless and outside the covenant, he has a vision of God. And in this vision, he sees this in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Outside of the Gospels, the idea of radiance associated with Jesus is rarely discussed. The word radiance in this sense is mentioned only here in Hebrews. It's an unusual use of the word. This is also how others saw Jesus, and he is intentionally drawing attention to this as well. But it is not, however, the only time light is attributed to Christ. The most famous, perhaps, is Isaiah 9.2, quoted in Matthew 4.16. The people in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. John says in his Gospel chapter 1 verse 4 in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind in verse 5 the light shines in the darkness and the dark darkness has not overcome it Jesus also said he called himself the light of the world when Jesus spoke again to the people he said I am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life Again, in John chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus said, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus was the radiance of the Father by virtue of what he said and did. His words were the words from God, and his actions were the actions of God. He was radiance, his person, his identity, and everything about him, and everyone could see it. He brought light into darkness. He brought revelation about God, about himself and others. The Bible gives no real authority to angels, nor does he confer in them much power, for all power is given to the Son. Nor does the Son identify as an angel, for God wants to know us, and he wanted to walk with us, treading on the stones, not avoiding them, experiencing our pain, not being exempt from it, and living among us as one of us. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Remember, freedom matters today because you matter to God. I'll talk to you next week.